This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with acclaimed historian Henry Reynolds. Henry joined me to discuss his award-winning book, Forgotten War. Henry's book details the frontier wars between First Nations people and white colonists. A highly influential book in the discipline of history, Forgotten War raises questions about whether Australia's government should be commemorating in a public way the frontier wars, just as they do other wars that Australia has been involved in. Henry details the true reality of the frontier violence that occurred and whether it can be defined as a war or even genocide. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the program historian Henry Reynolds, who is one of Australia's best-known historians. He grew up in Hobart, so is a Tasmanian at heart, I'm sure, and has pioneered a range of work in the field of history, obviously academically, but he's also certainly ensured that his work has translated into the mainstream and been part of the historical debates that we've been seeing across a number of decades, as you'll hear from Henry himself. He's authored a number of books, including recent books, the one that we last spoke about, That was called Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. He's also authored Tonga Longata, First Nations Leader and Tasmanian War Hero as a co-author. And we're going to be talking about one of his previous books, and there are a number of other previous books I should mention, so they're not the only books Henry has authored. But this particular book is called Forgotten War. It's been re-released this July through New South Publishing and it actually came out in 2014 and really did so well in terms of the reception it received. It won the Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction here in 2014 and Henry Reynolds has certainly pushed history, the field of history, to look more deeply at this area, which is the frontier wars, the violence and conflict that happened during the 19th century when white colonists came, obviously by boat or by ship, to Australia, to a land that was already occupied and possessed by First Nations people. So essentially, Henry's going to be here to discuss all of the many issues that have arisen from his historical research, but are captured in this most excellent book that is still highly relevant for us now. So I welcome Henry back onto the show. And thank you very, very much for coming back on and taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Henry, in our last conversation, we set the scene a little bit, and I hope we could do that again just for those listeners who may not have come across your brilliant work. And we were discussing, of course, your time in Queensland, in um, the upper parts of Queensland, in, near Townsville, with your wife, Margaret Reynolds, and the types of tensions that you were seeing between First Nations peoples, but also those who had descended from those white colonisers and others, and those personal first-hand observations, both you and Margaret, in your work, but also your activism. And I wonder if you could just share and set the scene as to where this work arose from, came out of, and then we can jump into the book and the concepts that it's looking at. Sure. Well, as you said, I, I grew up in Tasmania, went to university in Tasmania. Margaret and I married, as she did in those, in those days. And we got, almost the next day, we got on the big white boat to go to Europe. 
and we were there for a couple of years, uh, came back with a baby, but came back quite unexpectedly to North Queensland. I mean, what was in far North Queensland, I mean, it took two and a half hours to fly from Brisbane to Townsville, let alone get to Brisbane. So it was in far North Queensland uh, 50 years ago when it was an astonishing moment. I mean... I mean, the frontier was so much closer, so much closer. I mean, only a generation earlier. And at that moment was a a strange time because it was, in a sense, the end of the internal white Australia policy. Because uh, for much of the early part of the 20th century, Aborigines and Islanders weren't allowed into the towns. Um, I mean, the islanders weren't allowed to come to mainland Australia, the Torres Strait Islanders, and the Aborigines were either on pastoral stations or on closed reserves and missions, which they couldn't leave without permission. But in the 60s, there was, as I say, all sorts of things happened. The Torres Strait Islanders were starting to come to Australia, bringing their families, so originally come to work on the railways. Uh, The reserves were opening up, uh, Townsville had Palm Island, which was one of the largest Aboriginal you know, communities in Australia, and families were leaving Palm Island and coming to Townsville. And at much the same time, uh, the pastoral industry was shedding Aboriginal labour for all sorts of reasons, and people were coming into the town. So uh, we, we arrived in the middle of this process, and uh, we were astonished. I mean, we were astonished at... at at the world of, of you know, multi-racial Australia. We had no experience at all of this part of Australia. And we also were, you know, were shocked by many things. Um, and so we, we, we firstly, we, particularly Margaret, she was the activist of the family and later, of course, the politician, and so we got very much involved in the community politics and got to know many people including, of course, the Mabo family. But I was also teaching Australian history. And uh, my students, uh, they had come out of this world and they knew that questions of race were extremely important. But the history I was teaching didn't do this. The book I was using, it was the textbook set by University of Queensland because I was teaching their course, um, was the most widely used textbook for universities and, and uh, senior schools. And it was reprinted, I think, 16 times over 20 years from the 50s into the 70s. But it didn't mention the Aborigines. Uh, well, that's not quite true. It mentioned them twice in passing. And there wasn't even an, an index entry. So the, the Aborigines and the islands had virtually disappeared from Australian history as it was being taught. Now, had I been doing this somewhere in the South, I may not have been, I may not have occurred to me there was something wrong. But living where I was, you know, it was astonishing. So I had to, whereas Margaret, you know, became the activist, I became the historian and had to do the research myself because there there were no books there that I could go to the library and read up on this. I had to start the research. And that's where it all began. 
Yeah, and I know that there is just endless amounts of primary sources for you to have done that research. And, of course, newspaper accounts are one of those, diaries, letters. What are some of the sources that you found at the time to be most revealing and to set you off on this path? Well, I think the newspapers, I mean, there, there weren't that many sources available in, in council. Townsville University College didn't really have a proper library or a very small one. But what the first important lot of documents I got to was the copies of the first North Queensland newspaper, which had been established in Bowen in 1861, which was the Port Denison Times. And that, the original, was still in Bowen in, in the newspaper office. Wow. Great big hard copy uh, great big volumes. And so I went to Bowen and sat down and spent a long time, I don't know, a couple of weeks, reading the newspaper of the time. And that was a revelation. I mean, it was a revelation because uh, there was quite open discussion about all the violence. I mean, the native police were riding out from Bowen, going out and, and shooting up Aboriginal groups and coming back into town so that everyone knew what was going on. Uh, and the debate wasn't whether or not it was a violent process, colonisation, but whether it was morally justifiable, whether it was necessary, whether it was the inescapable, uh, you know, it was inescapable. If you wanted to be a colonist, you had to come to terms. And if you couldn't, you should get back on the ship and go back to England. So that was the state of the debate. And, and as I say, it, the violence was, you know, it wasn't a daily paper. I think at that stage was probably twice weekly, but almost every issue had something you know, in editorial, uh, uh, um, an article, letters to the editor dealing with the problem of, of frontier violence. Yeah. And so you've just referenced there, obviously, that the narrative at the time and the discussions of the time were very upfront about the violence that was occurring. But then, of course, later on, as you've said, with that textbook and the textbooks you had available, essentially, the national settler narrative had taken hold. And as you write in this book, Forgotten War, you say the new nation needed a fitting story. Settlement purged of the violence could provide stirring accounts of explorer, endurance and pioneer near grit. The frontier became a site of struggle with the land, not a fight for possession of it. And I found that to be such a, a great encapsulating statement because as you show in the, the first chapter, essentially, you take us through some of the primary sources that you find around the discussion of this violence and a lot of discussion about or using the word war, warfare, and this discussion using that language, I think perhaps might have surprised some people to hear the terminology of war, because we only often think of war as this thing that perhaps it's World War One or World War Two, where there are drawn battle lines, there are trenches, there are rules of war, whereas this is a very different type of war. And I wondered if you could take us through some of the statements and the language around war and warfare that you found particularly illuminating and what you took from that. You know, what did you take from the language that colonists were using at the time in the 1800s around this frontier violence? Well, yes. They, I mean, they, they clearly had to explain it to one another and to themselves. And uh, the, you know, the, the obvious thing was that 
it was war. Now, of course, there are other sorts of violence. The sort of violence of a, of a level beneath war, if you like. That is, you know, uh, piracy and and, and uh, organised crime and uh, private vendetta. All of these things. There's there's, there's plenty of violence in most societies uh, that isn't considered as war. But uh, there were some people who who would would you know explain it in those ways. But uh, the fact that it was war, and in a way, this was for many of them the justification. They said, "Look, uh, you know, the British Empire is fighting somewhere in the world the whole time. There's constant fighting on the frontiers of the British Empire." Uh, in Africa, in uh, Asia, in the Pacific Islands. Uh, and we are simply part of the, this expansion of the British Empire. And so, therefore, uh, what we are seeing is war. Uh, quite obviously, uh, in New Zealand, uh, at much the same time, that is the 1860s right through to the 1880s, which was the peak of the conflict in Queensland, uh, there were the Maori Wars. And uh, they were obviously thought of as war because they involved British soldiers and they involved battles in, in a way that could be understood. But to Australian settlers, they said, well, look, what is happening here is happening all over the empire. And so it, it is war of a kind, of a different sort. Indeed. And one of the primary sources you draw attention to and you say is particularly illuminating even now is a person who signed themselves J.E., a correspondent to a newspaper in Launceston, I believe, where he was reflecting on these issues around war and people who are responding to invasion and was really drawing comparisons about the English and obviously First Nations people and saying, are we being essentially hypocritical? Um, mm. And one of the you know, particularly illuminating lines in his letter is, why punish a black man with death for doing that which a white man would be executed for not doing, as in yeah. for, for being patriotic? You know, he says, what we call their crime is what in a white man we should call patriotism. Yes, exactly. And that, that was a remarkable letter of all, I mean, all the hundreds of letters I read to editors in all the colonial papers, that was the one that really stood out, uh, both because it, it was quite a long letter and it was very articulate, but it did point to this fact. Now, that's also uh, distinctive because the actual war in Tasmania, the so-called Black War, really was much more like a war. And the two sides were much more evenly pitted. I mean, the uh, Tasmanians killed something like 250 Europeans, you know, an astonishing number uh, in relation to frontier warfare. So it was, it, it was in Tasmania uh, seen much more like a war. And after all, uh, British soldiers were involved in the famous Black Line. They had 500 British soldiers. So in that period, it looked much more like, well, it looked more like the situation in New Zealand. But um, out on the Queensland frontier, I mean, the nature of Australian geography 
determine the nature of the conflict. And um, it was scattered. It was, uh, you know, it was uh, episodic. And that was because, uh, you know, the Australians thought often then and do even now many of them about the Aborigines, but they didn't think of themselves as the Aborigines. They lived within their small uh, nations uh, that had quite clear boundaries. They, they, they were often of long standing probably, you know, tens, even hundreds of generations that lived in these small nations with their own language, their own traditions, their own dances, their own songs, their own historical memories, and their own sense of, of a gene- genealogical continuity. And so the war of necessity uh, was episodic uh, because uh, each nation had to find a way to come to terms with the invasion in their own way, and it varied widely. But it did mean that the fighting was episodic, but that doesn't alter the fact that it was fighting over the great issues of warfare everywhere and in all ages. That is, the the sovereign right to govern and make laws and to impose law and the right to control, exercise control over the use of the land. Well, I'd love to pick up on the differences between Queensland and Tasmania and go into further detail in a moment, but I wanted to just pick up on another element here around the characteristics of warfare that you also bring in around one of the cases that you describe where two settlers, Captain Bartholomew Boyle Thomas and his manager James Parker, were killed. There were three Aboriginals who had been responsible for that killing. And interestingly, what did happen was not that they were sent to jail for murder, but that they were actually treated, as you write, as prisoners of war and were sent to a place where you would send prisoners of war to islands in the Bass Strait. And that was another distinguishing feature that you do highlight throughout the book. And you and you raise an excellent question, which is, if it isn't war, then what is it? Is it some kind of organised crime that England, Mother England, was ignoring for decades and decades? Yes, well, the, the, killing, the killing was ever-present and you know, people knew knew that, and modern historians have, have rediscovered that, and you know, seriously trying to enumerate the the killing, so that uh, there's no doubt uh, that this was the case. But if it wasn't war, then you know, it was extrajudicial killing. It was murder. Uh, there's no other way about it, and it would seem to me that. It was, I mean, war was, in a way, was sanctified. Murder, individual murder wasn't. Uh, you know, if you killed in war, you were a hero. If you killed at peacetime, you probably got hung. I mean, there was a profound difference between the two sorts of killing. Yeah, and you obviously pick up on language used by the various governors as well from the early 1800s right through. And so we've got Tasmania's Governor Arthur who described 
during his 12 years in that role, a period of lawless and cruel warfare, a mode of warfare, the lawless warfare, our continuing warfare, the lamented and protracted warfare. This is all primary evidence mm. uh, of, you know, the, the leaders essentially saying this is war between two sides, or they perceive it to be two sides. But as you say, it's much more complex than that. Yes, and that's partly because, uh, you know, Tasmania was different. I mean, it was different uh, both in when it occurred and where it occurred. Now, let's take the where. Well, the main the main conflict was with the people who we know as the Oyster Bay and Big River people. We don't know their the, sort of the national name they had for themselves. And much of the fighting was in central Tasmania, and above all, Tasmania is a, a land of, of hills and mountains, very complex uh, mountains and, and hills, and many of them forested. This was absolutely ideal country for guerrilla warfare. Uh, it was also very, very bad for the Europeans for two reasons. One, they had no idea. There were no maps. They didn't know the country like the locals did. Um, the other thing is that uh, both the soldiers and the the settlers, particularly the, the the workers, the convict workers who were out on the frontier, were on foot. They didn't have horses. And so when you take the white man down off his horse, uh, he's at a great disadvantage to the Aborigines who can move much more quickly and know where they're going. And so the very fact that it was all on foot in Tasmania meant the fighting was much more equal. What really changed things was when the Europeans got up onto horses, as they had to do on the mainland on, on, with a much greater distances and, and uh, you know, very, very big properties. So workers eventually had to have horses and that made them much more invulnerable and much more dangerous for the uh, Aboriginal people. And, of course, the the, um, the weapons changed dramatically. I mean, the guns that they had in the 1820s were flintlock mus muskets. They were very inaccurate. They often didn't fire. They took time to reload, and they weren't any more effective than spears were. I mean, while um, a convict, not with great experience, took maybe two or three minutes to reload, having missed with his first shot... Uh, the, the warriors could have thrown six spears and they could throw them at considerable distance and great accuracy because they grew up doing that because that's the way they fed themselves. So the, um, I mean, the, the very man who wrote that letter also wrote a book uh, later in his career uh, about the wars. Um, and he said that in bush fighting, uh, the, the natives got were always the superior, and that's almost certainly the case. So that that's why the Tasmanian situation was different. Mm. It's really interesting, you know, those elements you're describing about guerrilla warfare and obviously the characteristics of place and the advantages that First Nations people in Tasmania had. And when we bring in a concept that you raise in this book, the term genocide, which you said came about through Raphael Lemkin, obviously in the 1940s. It was developed in response to the Holocaust. And we have a very clear, well, to some people, a clear definition of genocide. To others, perhaps it's debated. But you do 
place Tasmania in that context and, and talk about it in relation to the terminology of genocide and say that it would be appropriate to begin with Tasmania, which has widely been seen as the site of one of the world's clear cases of genocide, dramatically illustrated by the death of Truganini in 1876. And I wonder, could you talk to us about genocide in the context of the Tasmanian case in particular? Yes. I mean, genocide is a very precise, a very closely defined concept, legal concept. And that's because the word was new. It was created by Lemkin in 1944. And then he was very close uh, in, in New York with the drafting of the Genocide Convention, which legally defined what genocide was. Now, because the word didn't have any, any life of its own, it was locked into that legal definition at the very beginning. And uh, therefore, it's, it's, it's a legal concept. And therefore, you know, <laughs> you could have your own version, uh, as people do. Uh, but, it's, you know, in, in my sense, if you're going to use the word genocide, you, you've got to stick to the definition. And the other point about it is that it's like murder. Now, you know, you're murdering, trying to murder a group. But a, the critical question is intention. Was the intention to actually destroy the group or was it to beat them in a war? And, you know, I, went, I spent a lot of time reading the whole process of the Genocide Convention and all the committees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in the UN Library. And um, they were quite clear that if it was a matter of war and you were you were destroying large numbers of your enemy to make them submit, that wasn't genocide. Um, and but above all, you've got to be able to prove that the killing had that intention, and that's the difficulty. And that's why there are so few prosecutions for genocide. It's much easier to uh, get people on crimes against humanity or you know war crimes than, than actual than, than genocide. Um, because it's like murder and manslaughter. You know, you, you can kill someone, but if you're not intending to, it's manslaughter and not murder. Indeed. And so there's the difference between the outcome, which might be the destruction of an entire group, versus whether there was an intention to destroy the entire group, as you say. In this particular chapter where you're looking at genocide, you say that during the years of the Black War, many settlers declared that the Aborigines should be exterminated, although they often used the word extirpated instead. Right. Yeah, right. it was really interesting to read those sources that you share. One of them from a, a very well-known figure, Edward Kerr, the director of the Van Diemen's Land Company, which was the colony's largest commercial undertaking, argued that if the killing of white frontier workers continued, quote, they must undertake a war of extermination, although it was, quote, dreadful to contemplate the necessity of exterminating the native tribes, unquote. And as you share with other sources, people will either either use the term extermination or extirpation. Do you believe that those statements from colonists at the time demonstrate enough intent to warrant the term genocide in the Tasmanian case? Well, except you, you, you can get just as many settlers who said this would be appalling. But, uh, mm. I mean, the, the, the strongest statement was the, the British imperial government that said 
you know that even if you know even if there is no outright intention if this were to happen it would be a you know a a, a, a a perpetual stain on the British name. I mean, they were strongly saying, don't even think of it. Now, that also meant that George Arthur, who, after all, was a humanitarian, he, you know, he, he, had, he had come to fame with the humanitarians, the anti-slavery people, for protecting the Indians, the South American Indians, and wouldn't allow them to be enslaved. Um, and uh, he, I mean, there's nothing in his actions or his words that you could possibly convict him. Now, if, if the government, I mean, that, that's the problem. Who, who does the genocide? Mm. And most, in most cases, it's, it's you know, it, it's the action of government. Now, indeed, there were people who, who were talking about extermination, but I'm not sure that... That is, I mean, can individuals, you know, can an individual settler be guilty of genocide? Well, no, I don't think they can be. Um, but uh, it's necessary to show that there were people doing this. And now I think Edward Kerr, because he was the man, he basically had his own fiefdom with almost no, uh, no responsibility to the local government up there in the far northwest. Uh, he ran his own show, and I think if you want to find a place where uh, the authority had this in mind and therefore must be considered, then it's Edward Kerr and the Van Diemen's Land Company. And yeah. uh, the the other, you know, one of the problems in Australia is which group are you talking about? You see, you, you're talking genocide against the Aborigines or about specific nations. Um, and in a sense, that's what you've got to do. And I think Kerr may well, it's quite possible that you can establish that Kerr set out to destroy those people, the nations of where his land was. Yeah. I, yep. I, don't, I don't think you can do that very effectively for the rest of Tasmania, uh, under George Arthur. That's really interesting. And if we look at the Queensland situation, obviously you've highlighted there that there's a very different circumstance and a different time period as well in terms of when some of the violence was occurring, although it was occurring across the entire time period. But you highlight some key perpetrators of the violence, including the native police in Queensland and the knowledge of the Queensland government at the time as to exactly what the role of the native police was. Could you share that situation in Queensland and what makes it so remarkable in such a terrible way in terms of the, the level of violence and frontier conflict that occurred? Well, firstly, it was a huge area. I mean, when Queensland became self-governing, you know, a self-governing colony, it still only occupied maybe 20% of Queensland, this vast territory, a 1,000 kilometres across, 2,000 kilometres north-south. It, it was a huge area, far bigger than most European countries. It was also uh, probably the most heavily populated part of Australia. So uh, the, the, this, is the, this is the context. Uh, it's also uh, most of the land is open savanna, 
uh, it's open country, which makes it therefore far better place for the invader than the defenders. Uh, although, I mean, there are obviously areas of rainforest and mangrove, but nonetheless, the, the, the great, plain, great inland plains of Queensland uh, make it much harder for the Aborigines to defend themselves. And by then, uh, the, unlike the poor urban, young urban convicts from British cities, by then the frontiersmen were usually skilled bushmen. They'd often learnt their, many of their skills from their Aboriginal assistants because they, as they came north, they came north with young mixed-descent people who, who had grown up with the Europeans but still had all sorts of skills from their traditional life. And so the people coming into Queensland were a very different breed to the, you know, the as I say, the, the poor urban convicts in Tasmania. And the critical thing about Queensland is that um, certainly from, certainly with the settlement of North Australia, uh, there was no convict labour force, unlike New South Wales and Tasmania. And so um, it was critical then that they employ the local people. And so, of course, there was lots of killing, but no one, no one wanted them all killed because you'd be killing the people who you, you become utterly dependent on for your economy. Mm. And so, uh, the, uh, you know, very, very quickly, uh, Aboriginal stockmen and women uh, came to be the absolute mainstay of the industry. And the farther north of the wind, the farther west you went, the more dependent they were on the Aboriginal workforce. And that remained the case right up until living memory, until the 1960s, um, where the Aboriginal stockmen were you know, absolutely critical to the, particularly in the early period when there were no fences. And so, um, as I say, although there was a lot of killing in Queensland, uh, there was no other workforce other than the Aborigines themselves. Yeah, and so when you're thinking about the native police and you were talking about the term dispersal, you say that that was essentially a term that everyone knew the meaning of, which was that it was a practice of shooting indiscriminately into Aboriginal camps. Clearly, there was this reliance on workforce, but there was also as well a high death toll or high estimated death toll as you cover in this book, you reference some of the historical research that's being done in Queensland to try and understand the extent of the killing that occurred on both sides. And you say that there's you know, quite a large estimate of deaths at the hands of native police between 1859 and 1897, potentially 24,000 Aboriginal deaths, but that doesn't take into account more broadly other deaths that occurred not at the hands of native police. And I wondered if you could share with us that difficulty around understanding the extent of these frontier wars and the the outcomes. Of course, you say there's death, there's also injury and ongoing effects of ill health. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes. I mean, Queensland, because it was, it was, I mean, numerous things, as I say, as a huge area, and it, it control had passed to the colonists, not to the imperial government. And that made a very big difference. And more so than in South Australia, where there's a vast area of where there wasn't much settlement until you got into the Northern Territory. 
and Western Australia was was you know was still governed by the British essentially until 1890. So um, Queensland is the place where power passes to the colonists, and they use it to spread settlement as quickly as they can. But it's very very thinly spread, and uh, you know it, it it was seen as necessary to have a military force, essentially a paramilitary force organised along those lines. It wasn't a, a normal police force. It didn't uh, act according to law. There was no attempt to uh, have, you know, um, to, to take out warrants for arrests. There was no arresting of people. There was no bringing them in and, and putting them on trial and sentencing them. Uh, there was certainly no uh, attempt to uh, have a coroner to look at deaths. I mean, it was totally uh, beyond the law. And indeed, dispersing was shooting at, shooting into, and everyone knew that. And I mean, they say that in Parliament. I mean, you know, they say that that's what it means. And that remained in the instructions for most of that period. That was what they were to do. Now, the point about that was that there were also monthly returns. Every every police, uh, every group uh, had to put in a monthly return, uh, which said what they had done and you know what, how many dispersals they'd been engaged in. Sometimes how many people were killed if they were able to count them. Um, so there was a there was a vast body of documentation, most of which was almost certainly destroyed. It's thought in the 1930s for obvious reasons, um, but enough of those annual reports survived. Uh, in other, you know, they'd been used in other in other in other in other cases in other documents, and they were, uh, and so the, the the historians who know these records with incredible detail, found enough of these annual reports that had survived to make an estimate of the number of patrols over 50 years and the likely death rate. And, you know, and they do it conservatively and they come up with a figure that possibly, um, you know, 40,000 and also there were the, the, the actions of the settlers. And once again, they, put, they found all of those uh, where people who were actually involved describe what happened or when there are other reports. And they put that together and they think that they, they say the death rate in Queensland was probably about 60,000. Now, the interesting thing is, and that's all from the, doc, the written documentation in, in the Queensland records. The other... Uh, scholarship that's been done is the archaeology that's been done on the native police camps. All the native police camps, they you know, found it exactly where they were. This is partly historian, partly archaeology. And their estimate is that probably the native police may have killed 70,000 people. Now, they are astonishing figures, but they are serious scholars. You know, this, this is not people, uh, you know, deliberately trying to, as Keith Winshaw would have said, fabricate history. These are serious scholars using quite different approaches and methodology, and they're coming up with those very, very high figures, and I think we have to take them seriously.
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm speaking with historian Henry Reynolds, and we're talking about his award-winning book, Forgotten War, which has been re-released through New South Books. I just wanted to address one of the the kind of obvious parts, and you have clearly referenced this in our discussion, is the Aboriginal resistance that occurred. You say that Aboriginal resistance to the intrusion of settlers into their country was widespread and persistent. It was common to almost every part of Australia and continued for well over a century. It was one of the most enduring features of the nation's history. And part of that is clearly violence, but another part is economic disruption and resistance and raiding crops, including corn, for example, kind of dispersing horses and cattle, uh, burning down buildings and barns. You describe a whole range of ways in which First Nations peoples had found ways to resist occupation and to try and push back against colonisers. And I guess that's another, you know, really important feature of this book is Describing the agency and the you know the warriors, the people who were fighting back and pushing back, there there wasn't this as many historians have unfortunately tried to say this kind of simple dying out or, or suggestion that there was no resistance and making comparisons to Maoris and Melanesians that Aboriginals in this case were not the same. How did you perceive the Aboriginal resistance? Well, I mean, the other idea is that people, um, you know, retreated and in, were, went off into the interior, but people stayed in their country, on their country, uh, fighting for and then coming to terms with, with who the Europeans were on their country. And by and large, they couldn't just go to other people's country. That, that very, in most cases, would be killed by, by their Aboriginal um, you know, the, the other nations, uh, they couldn't have been uh, those long continuity of, of those small nations without them defending their territory and, uh, you know, attacking trespasses. Uh, so that each of, each of the nations, you know, had to find a way to firstly, if they could, uh, keep out the the Europeans and resist sufficiently to uh, pre- prevent them from fully occupying their territory, or they had to find a way, if they could, to come to terms. And there's no doubt that this is a this is a fascinating story. And eventually, the work will be done to look at these little wars and these little and the little peace settlements and the coming to terms and and what that meant. But yes, the resistance is there. And, you know, people think, you know, they make two mistakes. One, they think of the Aborigines as uniquely peaceful. Well, that simply wasn't true. They are warrior. They're warrior people. And uh, and, and they were warrior people who, who had their arms with them all the time. They lived with their weapons. And uh, they had defended themselves against Aboriginal enemies, and they endeavoured to do the same with the coming of the Europeans, uh, even if they had learnt from people in a distance uh, that they knew they were coming, they knew that they were dangerous. Um, but remember, often uh, in because the settlement was in most places was was very very. Uh, widespread pastoralism, where 
you know, the, an Aboriginal nation might be occupied by two, three or four pastoralists. That would be sufficient to occupy their territory. So the number of Europeans is always pretty small and was certainly outnumbered by the local people. Now, the other mistake people make is that, that Europeans just and native police just killed because they were cruel and racist and violent. Well, no, they killed because they were fighting the resistance. The resistance had to be put down. Otherwise, you couldn't occupy the country. You couldn't occupy the country because your animals would be killed and disrupted. Your workforce, you couldn't get anyone to work for you. Uh, not white people because it was too dangerous. If you needed, if you wanted to settle, you had to stop the resistance. And the most violence occurred when the resistance was at its strongest. Uh, so that uh, you know, seen this way, the, the the white violence has its rationale. And in so many cases, and this goes right back to the very earliest days, the small-scale petty killing here and there, the constant threat, the danger, the insecurity of these people out there on this vast frontier uh, meant that indeed they, every now and then they'd say, we've got to put a stop to this. We can't go on with this tit-for-tat killing. We will go out and show them once and for all that this has got to stop. And that's when you had, when they, if they could, they would try and kill as Oh, I think we've just lost Henry there. Uh, I'm just going to see if we can get him back on the line. Hi there, Henry. You just dropped off. Sorry. Uh, where where was I? Uh, you were just saying that there was a kind of concerted effort to dampen down the resistance once and for all, and so it, there was this big round of violence, I guess, or a concerted amount of violence to prevent the ongoing resistance. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Just closing out this conversation, Henry, you write in this book, Forgotten War, that, quote, if we decide, as this book argues, that what Frontier Australia experienced was a distinctive, albeit sporadic, form of warfare, then much else about our interpretation of the past will have to change. And that obviously is true. It clearly means that the way that we remember the past in memorials, for example, as you highlight in this book, the Australian War Memorial would have to change, as well as how politicians talk about the frontier wars and how we provide recognition, but also take steps towards meaningful reconciliation and meaningful reckoning with our past. And I just wondered if we could close out on that point around how we remember the frontier wars and especially how government has a role to play in that and, and the reluctance of politicians to accept this really comprehensive set of evidence that we have in front mm. of us. Yeah. Well, um, the War Memorial is, is, is the most egregious example uh, where um, there simply has been a refusal to come to terms with this, even though some of the major historians who worked in the War Memorial, people like Peter Stanley, uh, have carried out long campaigns, and many, many people. But there's been this complete resistance, and government has allowed them to go on doing this. Now, where's the new government? And there, there are people now who are 
seriously in contact with the new government and the new minister responsible, saying it's time to do something. And uh, we don't know yet how that will turn out, but there's simply no doubt. And if, if, if if the War Memorial is allowed to defy what is so obviously needed, then there's got to be a, a, a new institution as well-funded as the War Memorial, which will be uh, the War Memorial for the Frontier Wars. And it, they will have lost their opportunity to be part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Henry, it's been so valuable to hear from you, to go into some detail here on your book, Forgotten War. We have, as always, just scratched the surface of the immense research that you've been doing over decades as a historian. And uh, I really want to say a big thank you to you and all the work that you've been doing, as well as, of course, Margaret and what she was doing when she was an activist and a parliamentarian as well. And uh, I want to say thank you for your time today and I hope to um, read more of your work as it continues. Well, thank you very much indeed. I've just been speaking with Henry Reynolds, who is an acclaimed historian, and we've been discussing his award-winning book, Forgotten War, which is out through New South Books via a new edition and there's um, some slight updates to it. There's also a whole range of books that you can delve into from Henry's past works, including the last one we discussed, which also won a few awards, called Truth-Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement, which I do implore that anyone interested in this subject read if you haven't yet done so. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.